that was where that bright light turned on for me, the, uh, that triggering moment where I just realized that, you know, I'd spent so much time doing enforcement work on EPA where you're looking at smokestacks and trying to get people to put control equipment on it and regulate what came out. With solar, you had an approach that just skipped the smokestack altogether. There were no emissions. And, uh, you know, can we just make this jump step away from like uh, controlling emissions to eliminating emissions? And that if you could do this in a cost effective way, you could really, you know, build the economies of scale for solar, which was then incredibly expensive and really bring down the costs. So, for me, like that was that light bulb going on of like, yeah, this is the next thing that I really want to do. That's Adam Browning, the executive director of Vote Solar, and this is the Power for All podcast. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Power for All podcast. It's a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. If you don't recognize the voice, I'm Christina Skierka, founder and CEO of Power for All. For the unindoctrinated, Power for All is a global campaign that's focused on accelerating the end of energy poverty. And again, for those who might not be as familiar, energy poverty is actually defined as a lack of access to modern energy services, such as lighting for households and clean cooking facilities. To try to imagine how big of a problem this is, just think for a second about what your day-to-day -day life would look like, let alone your holiday season, without being able to charge your phone, warm your house, or access the internet. So now multiply that, multiply how trapped you feel in this scenario, the lack of freedom, the lack of choice, the absence of opportunity by around 1 billion, and you'll start to get a sense of the scale of this problem affecting humans all around the world. So Power for All, we're here today because we envision a world where all people can benefit from the opportunities and quality of life that come from reliable, affordable, distributed clean energy. We work by mobilizing an incredible network of global partners, and we work to deliver evidence for action and trying to drive the collective action required to accelerate universal electrification. So with that background, please feel free to learn more about us by visiting powerforall.org. You can find there a whole bunch of sector news, analysis, data on our website. You can also sign up for our newsletter. But if you like the socials, you'll find us there too. So check us out at Power for All 2025. And that four is a number, Power number four, all 2025. And we'll often be saddled up to the hashtag End Energy Poverty Faster. So today we're joined on this episode by Adam Browning, the executive director of Vote Solar and someone I've been proud to call my friend for 20 years. Vote Solar is a 501c3 public advocacy organization operating in states across the U.S. So Vote Solar advocates for state policies and programs needing to repower electric grids with clean energy. And uh, Adam's been doing this for a number of years, I think 20. And before that, he was working at the EPA, where he ran an award-winning pollution prevention program. Adam clearly has a passion for affordable solar that started when he worked on a ballot initiative in San Francisco many years ago. And he's been forced into public advocacy ever since. So with that, Adam, welcome. It's great to have you with me on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah. So how are your holidays shaping up? 
You know, so far, so good. It has been a tough and challenging year across the board and uh, really looking forward to uh, some time to uh, shift into another year and just slow down a bit. Yeah. And, you know, it's great to hear you say that. And and just to pause for a moment and really recognize what a year it's been for everybody. And, you know, I hope those that are listening, that everybody's well and safe in your circles. And that hopefully what this podcast does is actually provide a little light at the end of the tunnel, as you said, and a little bit of inspiration as we look forward to reasons to be optimistic about 2021. But yeah, I mean, survival during this period, being outdoors has just been, you know, so important. And uh, and I know that's a big part of you anyway. I think you're a surfer, right? I am. I don't know if I claim that as a identity, but it is something I, I definitely love to do. <laughs> that's cool. And are you finding it's a busy time for surfers? Like, is there a whole bunch of people coping by jumping into freezing cold water in stretchy suits? Uh, right. So out here in Northern California, the surf season is the winter season. That's where you get your big swells. We've had some wonderful ones so far. And so I've been lucky enough to sneak out in the early mornings. I can get a few hours in and still, well, a few hours may be exaggeration. I can get a good session in and be back in time for pancakes. Which is, uh, <laughs> nice as long as I, you know, make it make it more sunrise out there. But yeah, uh, sounds perfect. Yeah, there certainly has been quite a few folks out in the water, and you know, I notice if we go around all the regional parks around here. They've been packed like never before. You see yeah. you know, biking, same thing. So. It is, we're blessed to live in a place where we have such wonderful access to the outdoors and it's wonderful to see so many people taking advantage of it too. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, I, I grew up in Colorado. I think you grew up in, I think, Florida and Wisconsin, if I'm remembering right. It's been a long time since we've covered that ground. But, you know, I grew up with a love of nature as well and always found the outdoors as my refuge. And it's a huge reason that I do the work I do today. I don't know if that's the case for you, but yeah, the outdoors have absolutely been the salvation for me during this period. And uh, yeah, looking forward to actually on that topic, getting a little bit more into your backstory. So yeah, do do correct me if I'm wrong. Do I have the right history on you? Did you grow up first out in the Southeast, as it were, and then maybe make your way to the Midwest? Broad strokes, correct. Yeah, grew up, my folks were teachers, grew up in Miami. So it was actually winters in Miami. And then as soon as uh, school let out, my folks would uh, pack up the uh, station wagon and uh, we'd drive up to an old family farm we had in Wisconsin, southwestern Wisconsin, which uh, where we would then plant some corn and mostly grew alfalfa hay. And as little kids, we'd just run wild. We'd always raised calves. We had horses that we trained up from foals. And so that duality of uh, you know Miami in the winter and then uh, working the farm all summer, it was just yeah. an incredible childhood and also quite a bit outdoors. But yeah, I think these are values that you also get from uh, your parents. And same here, you know, have a family that uh, valued outdoors, valued the environment and valued public service. Like that was a really mm. big part of growing up as a, uh, as a Browning. Yeah. And so how did that show up for you? Public service, were you, you know, elected to the student council when you were a kid or how did that really manifest for you? Oh, you know, I don't think it really manifested as a, as a youth. It's just something that uh, it's that macro running in the background to that it's really kind of a, you know, that desire to want to be a part of something larger than yourself, feeling outrage at injustices, 
and wanting to change them. And, you know, I don't know that it, you know, it needs to be something that, you know, you, it's not a, an office that you hold or a position that you necessarily grab. It's just a, how you move about in the world. Are you outraged by injustices or do you get mad about things that when you know, large powerful forces are doing something bad to smaller and weaker ones? And if you are, like you can and should act on it like that, I think is the call to public service. It's not necessarily uh, being the student body president or, I mean, you know, I also feel very lucky that uh, I was able to carve out a career that I could act upon that not everybody that wants to can. All right. Well, spoiler alert for our listeners. Adam has gone on to have an incredible career in public service, but uh, let's not jump ahead too fast. So everything you've laid out makes perfect sense about, you know, how you got to here, but there's a few steps in between. So I do recall you went to Swarthmore. That's actually where my stepdaughter and my son-in-law went and several friends. So tell me about what it was like there. I, I know that Swarthmore was really from the Society of Friends, if I'm remembering correctly, and with a very, again, continual focus on hard work, simple living, generous giving. Is that why you were attracted to go to school there? You know, that is interesting. So, I, yes, it was. Uh, it's a, a, a school founded by Quakers back in the 1860s. And so I went to a Quaker preschool and then I went to a Quaker college. I think my mother in particular was attracted to the tenets of Quakerism. She grew up in communist Yugoslavia where you know religion was at that point like essentially illegal. But the the spirit of Quakerism, while she never formally joined anything, was really alive and well in her. She was very much attracted to it. So it's funny, you make these decisions, uh, particularly about going to college, that have large impacts on your life. But when you make them, you don't know what the important criteria are or what you really want or what the impacts are going to be. I thought I wanted to go to a much larger school, and I really only applied to Swarthmore to placate my mother. But as it happened, you know, once I got in, I went to uh, did the school visits and really enjoyed just all the people that I met and the atmosphere there and uh, was intensely attracted to it. So it worked out in the end really well for me. The small size ended up being a bonus, a feature, not a bug, because you knew yeah. everybody. And so, you know, I had friends that went to the University of Florida, and there you know your, your neighbor, but you're in a you know, class with a ton of people, and you don't necessarily get to know people. And so being at a small school actually opens a much more broader world rather than it being confining like I thought it would be. For sure. And did you know at that time what was next for you? Did you enter college, you know, very clear-eyed on on what you wanted to do, or did that come at the end of college? I'm just curious how much clear direction you had for your career at, at a younger age. Oh man, you know, I feel like I'm still asking that question. What do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> so the clear answer to that question is: is I don't. I did not have a uh, a clear plan. And all the way through school or, or, or really immediately thereafter, I ended up just essentially just following the next really cool thing that I really wanted to do rather than having each stepping stone mapped out. And I always envied the people that really wanted to be a doctor from the time they were small and had that direction because it, you know, it's, there's something attractive about that clarity and that uh, lack of ambivalence. But absent that, you know, my counsel, or at least the path that I followed was 
not worry about that 10-year plan, worry about the, the next two years and do the most mm-hmm. awesome and cool thing you can do for your next initial step. Yeah, interesting. And, and so, but your next step was the Peace Corps, wasn't it, after college? So right in college, I applied to the Peace Corps, and back then, you know, you would have no idea where you would end up. But I knew that that was just an experience that I really wanted to have—the idea of living in a small, rural, agricultural subsistence lifestyle and really getting to know a very different society and people was just something that I thought was just intrinsically valuable and attractive, something I really, an experience that uh, I really wanted to have. And so where did you end up? Yeah. So I remember like yesterday getting that packet when I went to the mail room and opened up the envelope and uh, it was Guinea-Bissau, which is a country I'd never heard of. So I went directly to the, uh, this was before cell phones, almost before the internet went directly to the library and looked it up. And so it's a small country for folks that don't know in West Africa, right on the uh, sort of the uh, westernmost point, right underneath Senegal, right above Sierra Leone, right on the coast. And, uh, you know, I read the encyclopedia entrees for it. And uh, that was all I knew. You had to accept it or or not. And uh, I chose to just dive into the unknown. Wow. And I, I mean, it must have just been an incredibly unusual experience. I, I've had so many friends who've been in the Peace Corps. I remember when I was also at that tender age, graduating from college, I was myself thinking about the Peace Corps. And I read at the time that they also had sort of deferred programs for people who were having sort of midlife crises in their 50s, let's say, or 40s. And I'm thinking, I'll just put it off until my midlife crisis. Um, You know, uh, funny enough, here I am working in many of the countries I could have potentially been assigned to now. But what was that like? So you arrived. What do you bring with you for a two-year assignment in the Peace Corps? Do you even know what to pack? Right. So, you know, they'll give you a little guidance on what to pack. But the long and the short of it is not much. You think about, like, all the things that you may need. But, you know, every assignment, every place, every country, every program is so individual and idiosyncratic it's hard to make a blanket statement on it all but the bottom line is is like when you go you know your hope is to learn how to live in that country and everything that uh there is needed to live does in the end exist there and even if it uh isn't the things that you're you're mostly used to so Guinea-Bissau is a lusophone country. It was ostensibly, you know, their Portuguese is the official language. There's probably 20 different tribal ethnicities there. Each of them have their own individual language, of course, and a Creole, a Portuguese-based Creole that is the lingua franca that people use, you know, between tribes. So we did our training out in the Cape Verde Islands, which uh, had a an association with Guinea-Bissau, although they're different countries, but they essentially rebelled against the colonial Portuguese in a similar time frame with the same party. And we did our, you know, language training in Portuguese. Where I was assigned was in, you know, the far interior of the country where everyone, I was was living in in a Fula village and everyone there spoke Fula, which isn't a written language. That was something that uh, you just had to learn by by being there. 
I have to say, like the two years that I spent in Peace Corps were some of the most enjoyable, some of the most difficult, some of the most impactful, some of the most wonderful, some of the most challenging times I've ever had in my life. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think back on that time in my life with you know, great intensity and great fondness. It, uh, it really was an experience that fundamentally molded and changed me by throwing challenges in front of me that you know you either had to rise up and meet or you didn't. And having that serial experience of being really, really challenged, rising up and meeting them and making it through gives you a sense of confidence about your abilities and your purpose and your resiliency that uh, has stood me in good stead uh, across the board. But also just say, like living with the Fula in my village in Galamaro, such an incredibly rich and enriching experience. The people were so wonderful and learning the language, learning the ways and being, you know, folded into the fabric of the village life and village society is, uh, you know, with all the barriers that come from being a white guy from a very wealthy place, notwithstanding it just gave me you know appreciation for the realities for much of the world that i really could have never have had elsewise well so i have to ask what were some of these fundamental challenges you said you really had a, a number of challenges thrown at you give me one or two you know this is it was a subsistence agriculture village and there just wasn't a lot of food so you know i went there and you know lost a lot of weight just because there wasn't a whole lot of food there. So this is a place where you've got, you know, a rainy season, a dry season, and a hungry season. The hungry season being the uh, last, you know, right before harvest when, you know, the last year's harvest is uh, running out or has run out. And uh, people are really just parceling out the last of their stores or finding foraging other types of food like fonio and just to survive and that was a real challenge we had no phones there was no internet i was you know probably 30 miles from the nearest you know, main road or a place where there was a, a telephone and there were trucks that would go through every once in a while but you know my mountain bike was like my main source of getting from here to there and malaria was endemic. Dengue fever was endemic. This was a place where, you know, there was a 50% child mortality rate. There were just the struggle to live was omnipresent. And everybody worked all the time to just keep hunger at bay. And while I did have the privilege of every couple of months going into the capital city, I could buy more food and bring it back. And, you know, I was by no means as, uh, uh, you know, I had a safety net that I could fall back on. So I don't pretend to have shared all these challenges in the same way. It was just daily living was difficult. And you were there for two years. Did you ever have a moment where you thought you might leave early? Oh, you know, first couple of months, I thought, uh, I might leave probably 20 times a day. You know, it was really hard. Yeah. For the first while, I thought every day about going home. And, you know, there's really, there's a reason why Peace Score is two years. You know, you spend the first year really learning how much it is that you don't know. And it takes a long time to like develop uh, competency 
to strip yourself of hubris, to understand just why things are the way that they are. And those were really important lessons that uh, I learned over that first year and a half. And it's not until the end that you start to feel like you're able to do learn some more competency and you're able to think through local solutions to local problems and feel like you're playing a role in some way of being helpful. It's incredible the route that you've taken with this in your history where you learned at such a, a young age that you can exist in a wide set of situations. You, there's just so much confidence that must have come out of that for you. And, you know, I have to ask, given that I do what I do and that you're on the board of Power for All, uh, what was the energy situation in the village? Oh, you know, reading by candles and, you know, everyone cooked on over, you know, wood sticks over uh, three rocks. Maybe you had charcoal, but, you know, that cost money. So that was pretty rare. And yeah, you know, just like the daily burden to get water, to get firewood. You know, you began in the beginning, you know, talking about like the lack of comfort of not having energy and, you know, like the the idea of like having running water, of having warm water that comes out of the tap and not having to like walk, you know, miles to get the water, get the wood, gather it all, heat it up. Like it is for so much of the world, like the things that we take for granted here are things that really take a tremendous amount of work. And those are, it's, it's easy to think back and uh, then take some appreciation for the luxuries that we just take for granted. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, I know that, that there's a bit of a, a jump to how you actually came from uh, this experience to starting Vote Solar. Obviously, you've done some great work at the EPA, etc. But was there something that happened as you emerged from that experience, you know, two years on, where you did have clarity about what was next? Or how did that experience in the Peace Corps actually inform what you decided to do, which is build an amazing career that really has to, you know, stretches between protecting the environment and really trying to give energy access in a fair, clean, and just way to people. So how did that transformation happen? Did you see some clicks there after you left the village? Yeah, you know, again, not a straight line from one to the next. So after I left, I came back to the U.S. and I did not know what I wanted to do. This was ninety, end of ninety four. We were in a recession. Uh, economy was bad. Not a lot of folks hiring. And moved out to the Bay Area. I couldn't get a job. I used some of my readjustment allowance to buy like my first ever sport coat and first ever pair of leather shoes and. Uh, had my resume and sent it in and walked it around. And I ended up realizing that I could return Peace Corps volunteers had special hiring status with the federal government. And there was a regional environmental protection agency office in San Francisco. And so I figured that was probably going to be a, there was some leverage that I could use. And that was, uh, would be a really interesting job to do. And so I focused on trying to get a job there and eventually did. My time at the EPA was also wonderful and transformative in that it gave me a huge perspective on how environmental protection works and doesn't work in the United States. You know, EPA, it's not the think about best ways to protect the environment and then do it agency. It's the implement the laws that Congress passes agency. And uh -huh. there's a real gap between those two things. 
So the next big jump was, you know, after eight years of doing that, and again, seeing so many of the the unmet gaps, I really started to think a lot more. And this was like, you know, this idea of sustainability became like a catchword in the late 90s. And a buddy of mine from college had been working for the San Francisco mayor, Willie Brown. And he put solar on his house and loved it. And he's, uh, we met for beers and he's like, hey, let's try to get solar on City Hall. And uh, as we thought about it, the idea here was that the way to do this, the way to finance solar was really through a really low interest bond. And that if you could get a low interest bond with do solar and energy efficiency, use the avoided cost savings that could pay for that upfront capital cost. This whole journey turned into a ballot initiative to really try to do solar and energy efficiency on all public buildings. That was where that bright light turned on for me, the, uh, that triggering moment where I just realized that, you know, I'd spent so much time doing enforcement work on EPA where you're looking at smokestacks and trying to get people to put control equipment on it and regulate what came out. With solar, you had an approach that just skipped the smokestack altogether. There were no emissions. And, uh, you know, can we just make this jump step away from, like, uh, controlling emissions to eliminating emissions? And that if you could do this in a cost-effective way, you could really, you know, build the economies of scale for solar, which was then incredibly expensive, and really bring down the costs. So for me, like that was that light bulb going on of like, yeah, this is the next thing that I really want to do. As a 501c3 nonprofit organization, Power for All depends on the generosity of podcast listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast, value our research and participate in campaigns, and if you are among those able to donate this year, Please consider supporting our work at powerforall.org. Now, back to the show. And I'd never done anything political in my life before. And so we had, you know, armies of folks that were really, you know, volunteers that were going around all the commuter trains with uh, handouts and signs. We had, you know, visited every one of the political clubs in the city to give presentations and get their endorsements. And a couple of things struck me, you know, one was like people all over were really hungry to be a part of something positive. So much of environmentalism at that point was about saying no to things. And there was this hunger for like, okay, well, well then what, what, what do we say yes to? And having a positive message, a positive solution, really, again, it was not hard to get volunteers for this. And so this initiative ended up passing by 74%, one of the highest uh, rates at that time for any ballot initiative. And, you know, we had New York Times calling, we had other cities saying, how do we do this here too? That was when David and I were like, you know, we could do a lot more of these. Let's take the show on the road. Now, my mom was like, wait a minute, son, you've you've got a federal job. Like that's uh, <laughs> you know, a good paying job, son. <laughs> you don't quit those for like, you know, and uh, you know, she's enormously proud of uh, what I do now, of course. And, uh, but you know, it was a leap of faith 
to uh, quit a one career and jump into something else that uh, didn't have uh, a certainty to it. But after eight years in a federal bureaucracy, I was um, pretty worn down to a nub with certain aspects of that. And uh, this idea of creating something new, of building something that didn't exist, there was just was no one really thinking about how do we mainstream solar in a comprehensive collective way. And let me be clear, I didn't know squat about solar at the time. And, you know, the hubris of starting an org to build it while not knowing much strikes me now. But uh, those early days, you know, were ones of like such hard work, such intensity, really trying to, A, get programs going. We had this great win that we could fundraise off of. But, you know, we nobody knew like if we could do more of these and uh i just told myself like every day had to end with the licking of another stamp again this kind of dates us you sent in grant proposals by the u.s mail and i just wanted to make sure that like every day close it with at least another grant request going out the door and uh those were a lot of late nights to get this off of the ground yeah, I'm sure. Well, and I imagine, so So this was 2002, you got it started. And, you know, of course, 2006 was sort of a seminal year for the climate change movement. And obviously, renewables are tightly tied to that. You know, that was the year that the Inconvenient Truth came out. And, you know, Al Gore was telling his story. I, I know for me, my career changed then. And, and obviously, California at that day and time was just a hotbed of clean tech innovation. So I'm assuming Vote Solar benefited from that because you aren't just funded by grants. You're also funded by companies, correct? You know, I wish. We do. We did get some wonderful support throughout the years from companies and entrepreneurs that have been successful. And, you know, still 90 to 95% of our Vote Solar's funding comes from uh, philanthropic foundations. We definitely like to continue to grow that individual and corporate side of things. And the philanthropic, the foundations have been a more successful route for us throughout the years. In terms of that, so Vote Solar is different from a trade association. So could you maybe talk about how you see the distinctions and how you see them benefiting all, overall the renewable sector? Sure. Well, let me, I will jump into that, but let me just go back you know, quickly to an earlier thing that you had mentioned, which was, you know, there was this big, after Inconvenient Truth, this big round of like VCs getting involved in, you know, what they were calling the green economy back then and and climate tech. And and I actually see another resurgence of it right now. And this sort of leads to your larger question here was, you know, right around then, you know, 2005, 2006, I remember J.P. Ross and I, who was uh, another really early seminal figure we went down to sand hill road we had made appointments with like a bunch of the major vcs to talk to them about what we were doing because they were investing in all these solar companies and it was pretty clear like you know in like this venture capital world if you have a better mousetrap you can just sell it and that isn't the case with energy technologies in the US. There are utility monopolies, there are the powers of incumbency, there are uh, really large and influential fossil fuel companies that spend a lot of money and effort to control how decisions on energy get made. 
So, you know, we are far from a place where, you know, just the magic of the free market could somehow express itself. And so that has been a seminal, a central sort of idea for our theories of change, where you need a strong hand to counter the inertia of uh, all the interests that have been influencing and guiding how our energy decisions have been made up to this point. Things are very different now. I would say, you know, the differences between a trade association and a nonprofit association or organization, you know, trade association is there to benefit the companies, the members. The nonprofit, we represent the people that want to see this transition. Now, we're both arguing for policy change, and we have to have policies that allow companies to grow. And so we work very closely with the SIAs, the Solar Energy Industry Association, and the state chapters. But ultimately, you know, the industries themselves are, you know, the broader your industry association, you may have companies that have different and competing business models that see what success looks like in very different ways. And if you're working with, you know, if you're in a trade association that has those conflicts amongst members, your hands may be tied. You may not be able to take as aggressive and as long-term viewing of uh, positions as a organization that doesn't have that type of internal conflict can, like a, a nonprofit association. Yeah, for sure. But you focus on the public good, right? As opposed to the interests of your paying members. Right. And so we don't have paying members. We accept donations from industry if they enjoy what we're doing and want to help us do more of it and there's been much generosity shared but it's not a pay to play we don't we don't have a business model where it's only the companies that pay us are ones that we we end up working with i would say you know there's been as we've grown as the industry has grown and we've definitely kind of refined our approach and i would say over the last couple of years you know one of the biggest things that we've changed with is really interrogating this question of who benefits, like who is the we when we say we represent the people that want to see this. And we are much more, more and more thinking about real equity. Like how does, how do we ensure that everybody benefits from this transition from a fossil fuel energy source to a renewable energy source? How can everybody participate in and receive those benefits? And that has had profound changes in who we are as an organization, how we show up in the world, who we partner with, who we work with, and the policies that we uh, that we end up promoting. It's a, a journey that I think we've seen really accentuated over this past year by a lot of society, a lot of the institutions. And it's been something that we've been working on and thinking about over the past couple of years very deeply. Yeah. Well, and and your job isn't going away anytime soon, as far as I can tell. Uh, You know, jumping ahead to maybe talk a little bit about some more focused issues on international energy. I'm sure you saw the IEA report that came out about a month ago, um, got a ton of attention earlier this year, Renewables 2020, basically said renewables are set to account for 95% of the net increase in global power capacity through 2025. 95%. You know, I just want to stop and take that on board for a second, because even the most optimistic people who have been working in the renewables energy sector, did you know this day was coming? (laughs) Did you know? Or, Or when you hear numbers like that, you know, at this time when COVID, the great pause, 
has also shown a new light on what the power of energy is to help save lives, to improve livelihoods, et cetera. You know, it's, it's a very important moment. It feels like a real inflection point. And when you've got a traditionalist institution like the IEA calling this out, it feels unparalleled. So I don't know, did you think we'd be in this moment at this time? You know, it does. It is an awesome thing. And, you know, our earlier efforts, you know, in the early 2000s where we would pass, you know, renewable portfolio standards, you know, requirements for utilities, like, you know, those were like 20% renewable requirement, which seems like, whoa, that's a lot. (laughs) And, uh, you know, now we're in a position where we are regularly passing laws, state level laws that require 100% clean energy generally around the 2040 timeframe or so. And so, you know, on one hand, this has been part of our theory of change all along, is that we just needed to commercialize uh, these renewable technologies, make them cheaper than the alternatives, and remove all that resistance based upon cost, 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 uh, instead of looking at value, value, value. And I still feel that we are not going to get to where we need to go in the time frame that we need to go just by the gravitational pull of these awesome economics. We have to go further and faster. And, you know, like we don't live in an area or a time when uh, that cheap is or low cost is, uh, is going to be sufficient. There are a bunch of utilities in the United States right now who have talked about who have committed voluntarily committed to 100% or net zero 100% clean future who are still trying to build massive amounts of new fossil plants so you know duke energy is one of them largest utility in the country has uh, said that it wants to be net zero by 2025 but if you look at their inter- integrated resource plans like the documents they file with regulators over what they plan to do, you know, there are nearly 10 gigawatts of uh, potential plans for new gas. So there is still an enormous role for advocacy to continue us on this path of accelerating the phase out of fossils and moving to 100% clean energy future. You know, again, just uh, the economics alone won't get us there. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, I mean, the the numbers are super impressive, right? So in the same IEA report, you know, the prediction is, is that by 2040, coal is expected to fall below 20% of the share of the energy mix for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. You know, we've got plenty of uh, reports and, and reporting out there that tells us that 2019 was the high watermark for oil. On your, your idea, though, that, you know, technology and, and cost effectiveness isn't probably enough to get us there by itself, what is coming in tech? I, I feel like there's been so much conversation about storage, but, you know, where is solar going? What are you hearing out in the sector about the next innovation? Is it just more efficient panels? Is there more to it than that? What's happening on the technology side to help further support this drive that you're talking about? Yeah. So, you know, I am not a technologist, but I do read people who are. And so, you know, on the solar specific, like there are new technologies or iterations on current ones that uh, have potential and have promise. But even with the plain vanilla PV that we have right now, through the same process that we've gone through, through learning, through doing, bringing down costs through economies of scale, you know, right now you're looking at the 
modules, the cells, the modules themselves are, you know, in the low 20s. Talked to a Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, guru on this and uh, Jenny Chase. She's awesome. If you don't follow her on Twitter, you should. And, you know, she feels like it's going to go into the single digits by the 2030s. And so, you know, eight cents per watt on the module price. That's just, you know, still incredible. So I do think, you know, IEA is called solar right now, you know, the cheapest energy source in history. And it will continue to get cheaper with continuous profound implications. Mm-hmm. We're, we're really needing is like a revision on like, how do you make the grid work with a non-dispatchable variable renewables, pulse solar as well as wind and all the geothermal and the other things that we can mine out of it. And I think that there's, you know, storage is one thing, but there is also a ton of value to be found in flexibility wherever you can find it. And so in the US anyway, I'm predicting and hoping and we're working on seeing a real scale up and maturation of demand response, which is a uh, technology or a, an approach that's been around forever and with you know new enabled automation has a potential that our policy framework hasn't yet caught up with to really scale in a helpful way. So same with battery storage and I think you know electric vehicles have been the, the driver of a lot of the cost reductions in lithium where we're seeing like nearly 90% reduction in cost over the next 10 years which will continue to go down. And, you know, lithium-ion may not be the single workhorse in terms of storage for uh, the electricity grid. It'll definitely be an increasingly utilized and increasingly helpful one, but there will definitely be additional technologies that provide for longer duration storage as well. So this is where, you know, you have seen an enormous, very recent explosion in new venture capital money going into climate tech. And I think, you know, there's a lot of money looking for solutions as governments around the country, around the world, are dedicating themselves to setting market policy to phase out harmful fossils. And, uh, you know, that sends that long-term market signal that when you have solutions, they will be utilized. So, I see, again, just a ton of money that's going into a lot of the, uh, the new technology that will be necessary, not just to produce low-cost renewables, but to make the entire grid function reliably and, and safely on it. A hundred percent. You know, integrated energy is uh, certainly something whose time has come, and it's going to take a whole bunch of related sectors, uh, technologies, and experts to really realize the full potential of renewables, and that means utilities themselves. You know, on that, you know, you were talking a little bit about governments looking for help, ideas, support. You know, I I do want to switch in our last 15 minutes or so of conversation to what we can learn from your experience. You know, you're 20 years into this, this thing called Vote Solar, and you've done some amazing work. You've been in touch with people who are passionate and uh, profoundly committed to really the activist side of the work, but it happens in policy. And you really need to back up all that enthusiasm with fundamental structural change. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you know a fair amount about the plight of uh, trying to get energy to everybody in the developing world as a, a board member of Power for All and, and both as a, a former Peace Corps volunteer. 
volunteer. So I'm wondering what lessons you think our sector, and in particular Power for All, can learn from Vote Solar. What's the single most important policy change that Vote Solar helps enact to grow the market? Yeah. So let me just you know speak about my experience at Vote Solar, and then we can perhaps together talk about how this is relevant and applicable to other places. And so I think from my experience, one key to success is being very clear about what success looks like, really understanding the four or six or eight corners of like what a, a market policy really looks like. Often that's not one switch you need to flip. You need a bunch of them and you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so being able to identify what the changes specifically you want to see happen and all of them together as a whole and then really understanding who are the decision makers who needs to make these decisions and so in the US context you know we have the federal government we have congress but most key decisions were made at the state level either through the state legislature or through the public utilities commission the regulatory bodies so we were able to develop these you know single sheets of paper or maybe double sided that laid out the, the four corners, the uh, the four pillars of uh, successful sort of rooftop solar policy, so that you could hand this to a policymaker and say, like this, this is what success looks like. You do these four things, and here's what you will get: you will get a successful solar industry. So clear about what success looks like. Clear about who's making decisions. Where are the venues? And then the final one is really being very careful about putting together campaigns designed to speak to those decision makers. And so for us, that looks like that's generally twofold. One is you got to really make a strong fact-based case with your numbers. You need to do your analysis and do your calculations and make your case with numbers. The flip side of that is you never win just because you are right. All policymakers are political animals at the end of the day, whether they're elected or appointed, and you need to build a political context around the decision that you're hoping for them to make and build the parade, bring, uh, shine the light of public scrutiny in these like back rooms where these decisions are made and uh, really construct ways to let all the people that want to see this change happen know what's going on and give them that opportunity, that ability to, to weigh in and express their preference. So for us, like those have been really the three keys to success. And, you know, I also want to say, like, you know, I'm humble enough to know that like this, that might not be perfectly transferable in its pure, sort of <laughs> in its exact form to all the contexts around the country, around the world. For sure. Well, and, and, but, but one thing that is seeming to show up everywhere right now is targets. And, you know, whether it's companies or countries committing to be net zero by a certain year, you know, we have COP26 uh, most likely about to happen next year, uh, where targets are often parts of discussions. So what role do you think targets plays in creating a, a North Star really for for alignment around have they been important do you think in the US yeah i mean you know their targets are come in a couple of different flavors some are kind of hand wavy nebulous and some are hardwired into law as a 
a requirement with compliance uh, penalties associated with them and interim targets leading up to that final compliance date. All are helpful. The latter are much more preferable. So if you can get this into uh, a target from a a general goal to a, a specific requirement, that is really helpful to orient all your the machinery of across the the state towards that goal. I will say, you know, we have a saying around the office here that uh, the passage of a major piece of energy legislation marks the beginning, not the end, of your effort. Implementation is key, and staying involved, working with the various agencies that have to implement this is super important and super helpful. You've got to follow these things all the way through to make sure that it ends up with a real program that helps real people. Okay. Well, you know, on that, you know, I do want to focus on reasons to be optimistic. This has been an unbelievably hard year for pretty much everybody I know. And I'm sure the same is true for you. You know, COVID-19 really brought into incredibly sharp relief the inadequacy of energy infrastructure in many countries. And importantly, also the interdependency between energy and SDGs. In particular, the pandemic has really been hard on jobs, food systems, and health. You know, and on top of that, we're about to see uh, some new numbers come out, I think, from the ILO, the International Labor Organization, that basically suggest further declines in the, you know, hundreds of millions of full-time jobs. So, you know, in this discussion about targets and green recovery, you know, I I really wanted to sort of pick up the thread there because now, you know, the Green New Deal got uh, certainly a lot of attention, both good and bad in the U.S., but there's been several green deals discussed around the world. And that includes several coronavirus recovery packages with green infrastructure being at least part of it in 30 countries. So I just wanted to get your take on that and talk a little bit about jobs. You know, in in the United States, the great work of the Solar Foundation to to really quantify the jobs that could be gained from solar has been instrumental uh, in terms of moving, I think, opinion and really keeping a constant attention on the value of what solar and, and green jobs can bring to an economy. So as we look to our recovery in the United States, Do you think there's going to be a role for that in the coming year as well or the coming years? Because who knows how long it's going to take for us actually to be, quote unquote, recovered. But I'm just curious, what do you think is actually going to come of these plans? Is it all talk or will we actually start to see some fundamental changes in infrastructure brought on by, if I can use this word, the opportunity that COVID presented? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And I love how you set this all up. And so I think, you know, we actually haven't had as much conversation about this in the U.S. to date as there's just been no oxygen in the room, either in the state legislatures or at the federal government, where, you know, states are trying to figure out how to get people to wear masks, you know, how to save, get schools open. Uh, Federal level, it's all been about the election. And now, you know, whether or not we're going to continue to have a constitutional democracy. I predict, though, in the spring, like we will have, again, a lot more room. And with the vaccines on the way, uh, this conversation will shift towards exactly that, the, the recovery. And I look at the Biden-Harris team, they, they campaigned hard on climate. During, you know, in swing states at the end of the campaign, they were running ads on 
climate solutions. Like they come into office with a climate mandate that they earned. The team that they've put together, I've been quite impressed with uh, in terms of the appointments that they have announced so far to address climate. So, you know, you hear President-elect Biden talk about like when he hears about climate crisis, he sees jobs. Well, the way that he tells us that he really means that, I think, is by appointing uh, Governor Granholm to the Department of Energy. That is a a real tip off as to like what they see as their the problem set that needs to be dealt with when it comes to energy. If you think we need to invent some new technology or uh, have some fundamentally new science in order to get around it, you know, you you appoint a, a uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist. If you think the problem is fundamentally how do we deploy and build a ton of new jobs and deploy all the technologies that we have. Then you appoint someone like Governor Granholm, who is passionate about uh, electric vehicle manufacturing, who really understands, uh, is on the board of like uh, some electric bus companies, or has been recently, who really understands, and I think you put this so well, Christina, the opportunity that this confronting the climate crisis affords us. So this is ways of putting tons of people to work to make everybody's lives better this isn't about sacrifice and slowing down the economy and having a uh, you know reduced access to the things that we all have uh, grown used to and loving. This is really quite something different. So, I we will see whether or not the Biden Harris team will be able to pass new legislation. That will all depend upon the runoff elections in Georgia on January sixth, and whether or not there will be a change in the Senate that will allow for new legislation. Regardless, I do expect thoughtful and uh, uh, really helpful executive action through, again, like this pick of uh, Governor Granholm, I think just shows the cards that what we're talking about is a massive focus on building new jobs that build the technologies of tomorrow and delivering the benefits to the people as we try to work our way out of the savaged economy that we're living in right now. So that does, in fact, give me hope. I feel like there's a great team together there that has their eye on the prize and that knows what they're doing. For sure. And one of the things I am particularly bullish on is what renewables, and obviously in my part of the world, decentralized renewables can do across the entire value chain and types of jobs. So we've heard a lot, I think, throughout the year that essentially the tech sector, the 1%, the 20%, what have you, has all been fairly well protected through this incredible carnage of COVID in terms of jobs and maintaining employment, keeping wages up, etc. But what's great about decentralized renewables is that they're great jobs, but they're jobs all along the chain. So at the same time, our sector really needs to scale with management distribution skills. There's also a need for things higher up the food chain, if you will, not just management, but in fact, softer skills around HR and strategy and planning. And one of the really exciting things, just to tie back to some of our earlier discussion about sort of energy transition and how we need to see grids changing and electricity sector working together as a whole, is that this sector, this nascent sector of decentralized renewables is already doing so much more than anyone expected. We are already growing a workforce comparative to utility power sectors. And 
that's unheard of. A 10-year-old industry at max taking on a 100-year-old industry is just an incredible thing to see. And that's direct jobs. That's not even the indirect jobs that come from what we call productive use in the sector. So ancillary services and products and everything from milling to having a, a bar with a TV, it, it all adds up. And I think there's an incredible opportunity, I think that's the word for the day, to really start to see these things come together and and hopefully in the same way that that first sort of phase of climate tech, as you were calling in 2006, moves forward into this one. Hopefully it'll also be an opportunity to bring more attention on decentralized renewables and, and how a global solar sector can work together to not just electrify, but to make people's lives better. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And let me just lean in on that, you know, the both the renewable as well as the decentralized part of this. And I think, you know, there are lessons to be learned from places with, you know, robust fossil fuel grids that are trying to make the transition to clean energy to places where there isn't much of a grid and trying to find the, the right path forward. Lessons alike. So, you know, we just helped sponsor a study looking at the path forward in the U.S., and hired Dr. Chris Clack, who did this analysis for us that looked at you know, five different pathways and found that to get to 95% clean energy in the U.S. and found that the pathway that really optimized for uh, local renewables, for a decentralized path, you know, intuitively we all feel, well, that can lower the infrastructure costs for everybody and will be cheaper. And in doing these numbers, he found that's exactly correct. The cost savings were about $470 billion by really focusing on a managed distributed generation future where we maximize the amount of local clean energy that also has the potential benefit of providing a lot more local resiliency as well as local jobs. This doesn't mean like everything is on the rooftop, by no means. Like there's still you know, massive amounts of centralized renewables that will be needed to get to that completely clean up the entire grid for the U.S. But just to point out that a focus on decentralized renewables in the U.S. can save massive amounts of money, it's also an awesome place to start for areas of the world where they're just looking to build the energy access to begin with and not waiting for not building out your fossil fuel grid or even the whole grid to begin with and just starting with microgrids can be a path forward uh, of enormous savings and where, where we should all begin. Well, savings and better quality energy. Uh, one of the biggest problems facing emerging markets is the lack of reliable power. And uh, one of the things about these smaller you know, areas to distribute the energy is it's more manageable. And so there's tons of opportunity, tons of potential. One of the things I love is that, you know, through some of the work going on right now, working with really progressive utilities in developing countries, you know, there's, we're finding ways to bring decentralized and centralized together. And we might even have a few things to teach the U.S. on how to do that. So, Adam, this has just been such a great discussion. I could talk to you all day. I actually learned some things about you today after knowing you for 20 years that I never knew. Yeah. And just in closing, you know, I'd love to hear from you. You know, what's next for Vote Solar? What's next for you? What's on the horizon? Yeah, you know, so Vote Solar is definitely going through changes and growth. My 
you know, initial premise is that once we got solar cheap, we'd work ourselves out of a job is proven sadly incorrect. Solar is now cheap, and I do see an enormous amount of opportunity to accelerate the transition and a lot of threats to slow down the transition that need to be engaged around the, the country. So we're also thinking much more deeply on how do we make this transition as inclusive as possible, because I don't think that we can get to 100% clean energy without real thoughtful attention to making sure that everybody can both access and participate in and receive the benefits from this transition. So equity is a central concern as we continue to grow and continue to go forward. I don't know when the end of advocacy will be, Christina. I wish I did know, unfortunately, or fortunately, like there's always opportunities to continue to make things better. And so I think we will, as an org, continue to stay involved. It's also interesting that I look around and there are a ton of uh, really opportunities for complementary tech and solutions that really will help the grid run on 100% clean electricity. And the policy environment is really nascent. I think that there are needs for vote solar equivalents in a, a lot of additional spaces around there. Now, there's a lot of wonderful people and a lot of wonderful groups at work, but uh, we're constantly thinking about like what else needs to be built in order to get to where we need to go as fast as possible. So I, you know, I would leave with like, what's next is like, there's, there's always a lot more wonderful work to be done. Indeed. Well, on that fabulous note, um, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, you've been hearing from Adam Browning, Executive Director of Vote Solar, and also a very proud Power for All board member. Thank you so much, Adam, and have an excellent rest of your day. I hope you enjoyed hearing my discussion with Adam Browning, Executive Director of Vote Solar and a board member of Power for All. As I think we heard really clearly today, the world needs renewable energy. And well, Power for All needs you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please consider making a contribution today at powerforall.org donate. Thanks for listening, for sharing our vision and supporting our work to end energy poverty faster.